more than the actual conditions, it was mental. It was mental torture because there was a storm coming. You are a lunatic. Five different manners of death. One is homicide, suicide, accident, natural, or undetermined. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to best case, worst case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler and writer producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today electronically is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we are back. We're remote. We're on two different coasts, but we have an incredible guest with us. We do. And with us again today is... Donnie Eicher. Hey, Donnie. How you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? All right. Well, we're really eager to get back into your story about your investigation into the lost lives of nine young hikers in Siberia in 1959. So let's get right back into it. Donnie, what time of year is this that you're doing? Thank you, Jim. I was going to ask that. Yeah, this was uh, February. I think it was, I think I arrived February 2nd or 3rd. My, you know, Mm -hmm. my, the hikers died the night of January 31st, February 1st. Mm. And my son's birthday, strange enough, is on February 1st. Mm. So I waited and celebrated my son's birthday and left right after. And so then you waited like three months before you tried to go up to the Siberia, right? No, I stayed with Yuri Kuznovich there and we put together a team and um, did the same journey. We got on a train and went to Ivdel and many of the same places where the hikers went. And then we got in a military vehicle and went to a Monzi village, which is the local indigenous tribe Wow, that lives out in the middle of nowhere, no running water, no electricity, 35, 40 below zero. How did it, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> How do people survive in 35 or 40 below zero when there's no electricity? Well, they are drinking something that's in a jar. I think that warms them up a little bit. Uh, do they make that themselves? Yeah, they make that. I had a little taste. It's certainly uh, fire, fire water. Pretty quickly. You know, the, the places where 
the places where they live are just for me that was just like a freezer. I mean, I, I slept with all my clothes on and, uh, you know, all the winter gear that I had. Yeah. But when I had first arrived there, uh, I was told to sleep in the dog's bed. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I was, I was a little, uh, my feelings were a little hurt. <laughs> I, can imagine. I later learned the, the Monzi was actually giving me his dog, which is, you keep know, you warm. keep me warm, man. And that's, how they survive the, you know, the dog and wow. It's, uh, well, I know I stayed, I went to, um, Chena hot springs in Alaska and it was minus 20 out when I got there and I wore all my clothes to bed as well. And I remember I was in a, uh, you know, a modern facility there, but on the inside of the window by the morning, there was a quarter inch of ice just from me breathing all night, you know, just froze on the window. But I can't imagine that's now you're like 20 degrees colder and you're in a place that has no electricity, no modern conveniences. It must have been torture. Well, it was. And I tell you more than the actual conditions, it was mental. Yeah, it was mental torture because there was a storm coming and we didn't have satellite phones or anything like that. Obviously, my phone doesn't work. So we're off the grid. And I do have a family that I love very much. And, you know, everyone through my translator that wasn't really a translator, I found out later he was a geologist as well. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he sort of gave the nod of, listen, the group kind of feels like maybe we shouldn't go out there. Right. And then you start doubting yourself. And uh, you start thinking, why am I going? Why, why does this matter? What if I don't come back? Is this really worth it? Right. And, uh, that's what really started to get me in, inside my head because we spent two or three days in this hut waiting for the weather. And, but ultimately, we decided to push on and keep going. Wow. Uh, Donnie, I say that's- this in the most respectful way. You are a lunatic. yeah maybe a little (laughs) why just because he went out into siberia into the mountains of siberia when a storm was coming when even the locals were afraid of going out there i don't know why you're saying that for a mystery that was in the 50s yeah i don't know i can't imagine anyway so you went out there and what were you on dog sleds or snowmobiles so how did you get out to the actual mountain it was a mix, and it certainly, um, full disclosure, was not near as difficult as what the hikers did with, with their basic gear. We hiked quite a bit, uh, snowshoes, we had skis, we had snowmobiles part of the way, but um, it was still a long journey and uh, obviously very cold. And did you have modern equipment to keep you warm? Any heaters or hand no. warmers or foot warmers or anything like that? No, I didn't have any of that. But, you know, I had, uh, well, I don't want to say the name of the company, but I bought these boots called Arctic Pro Boots. Okay. That were meant to keep your feet warm and, you know, 35 below zero. Oh. When I arrived in Russia, they all laughed and said uh, they called them elephant boots. Oh, no, that seems bad. <laughs> They said, you need to wear our wool boots. 
And I looked at them and it looked like, you know, those look like elephant feet to me, like woolly mammoth feet. They were just these square wool boots. And I stuck to my boots. Are you saying wool, like made out of wool, made out of wool, like hard wool. (laughs) And I stuck to my guns and, um, pretty far into the, to our expedition, I suddenly started to have an issue with my feet and my two toes started to freeze together, my big toe and my second toe. And I said to the translator, I'm having issues. My toes are freezing together. And he said, welcome to Siberia. And you said, I'm leaving, right? And he said, I'm sorry, you can't take your boots off and you're just going to have to get through it. And what was happening is my feet were sweating and they weren't breathing. The material that my boots were made with weren't breathing. That's why you need the wools because it breathes. When in Russia. Do like the Russians. Yes. Wow. You know, after I had gone to Dyatlov's Pass and we did our tests and everything there and I got back to the to where we were staying at the Monzi village, I took my sock off and, you know, they basically said, if it starts to go black, you're going to lose the tip of your toe. Mm. But if it blisters and goes red, you're just got a good story to tell. So I sat there um, watching for maybe five, six hours. Mm. And, uh, because that's the only thing you can do when you're in a hut in the middle of Siberia in the middle of the winter. Yeah. It's great fun. It's great <laughs> fun to every, have everyone staring at your toes. And what happened? Um, it didn't go black, but I, I still have to this day, I don't have full feeling in my second toe. Oh. But, you know, it's no big deal. But And we're going to call that your Dyatlov toe, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, it was very cold. So, you know, you kind of quickly skimmed over that. But can you tell us about, you know, what it was like, you know, when you got to the Dyatlov Pass? I mean, what did you find? And and what did you discover about you had some pictures and you had basically crime scene pictures from when the rescuers went out there. Right. Did you actually kind of find the area and and investigate it yourself? Yeah, we found the area. I was with a. um scientist named uh vladimir who was just a a brilliant brilliant scientist and we figured out well i should backpedal actually i I tell you one thing that really struck me is that when i first saw the dome-shaped mountain of dead mountain my first thought was you're good you don't need to keep going there you know it's nothing exists on the mountain except for these little dwarf pines because it's such harsh conditions there and i really had a big part of me saying take some pictures from here wide angle why continue and why push your fate and obviously i pushed on but that was an emotional moment for me of just having this idea or even a dream and seeing a few obscure pictures on the internet and then all of a sudden there i am how did i get here and then actually going to the place where they died was just, um, it was an emotional moment for me that probably is hard to understand. But, you know, my goggles started to fog up. Yeah. I started to get very emotional. And um, 
I think part of it was just the rush of actually getting there, but it was also so remote that I also wanted to just get back because we didn't have a helicopter or anything we could call in. And, you know, this, this isn't Mount Everest by any means, but it's so remote that if anything happens, you're, you know, Mm. My, my doctor gave me some really strong pain pills that he said, best case scenario, if you break your back or something really bad happens, take these pills and you'll be knocked out for quite a long time. And hopefully you wake up somewhere better. Well, <laughs> and Donnie, was there ever any time in your mind you're thinking to yourself? I mean, I realize that it's a little silly to say horror movie, but as you're approaching the place where these experienced hikers died in what sounds like horrific conditions with the burns and the tongue and the skull fractures. Did it occur to you to think, you know, maybe they're real. I mean, this sounds so silly, but I really don't mean it that way. Maybe there are Yeti or, you know, some of life's mysteries there that are going to kill us. A little bit. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because when I spent a lot of time with the hikers extended family, they really started to become real for me that there are these real people and they're brilliant and they're poets and musicians. And I sort of started to fall in love with them. So the story started to become humanized. Mm. So any sort of legend or myth, and I, I talked to the local indigenous tribe there, the Monzies, and, you know, because one of the theories was that that was a religious site. And that the Monzi had gone there and killed the hikers for sort of, you know, stomping on their religious site. And, and they said, no, that's not the case. You know, um, we actually helped the investigators. We actually helped recover the bodies. You know, they spent months out there with, with the rescue teams. And, you know, they, they were a big part of, they were an asset. So it sort of became demystified there in that sense that there was no um, Arctic dwarves or yetis <laughs> or aliens running around. And, and your biggest enemy out there is the elements. And, and the question here is what unknown compelling force would push nine highly experienced hikers to leave a perfectly good tent in sub-zero conditions in total darkness and walk a mile to their certain death. And by the way, there was a cut or a tear in the tent and it was cut from the inside going out. Ooh. Wow. Body hair is a reality we all have to deal with. Some of us deal with it better than others, and some products help us deal with it better than others. Flamingo makes body care, starting with hair. A collective of women at Harry's, a men's shaving brand, saw an opportunity to create better hair removal solutions for women after interviewing thousands of women. I have the Flamingo shave set and the razor and the body lotion, and they are all products that make it so much easier for me to keep my skincare fresh and to get rid of unwanted body hair. I want you to enjoy shaving too, and Flamingo designed a shave set that makes me really happy. It's a $22 value, but for you, it's $16 and it ships for free. What could be easier? The shave set is your end-to-end -end routine in one reusable pouch. 
gel, razor, an extra blade, key, lotion, and a holder so it doesn't get lost in your shower. And it's 2019, so obviously it's all cruelty and paraben-free. Get a set with all your shave essentials from Flamingo, the brand that Vogue, Glamour, really everybody is talking about. It's a $22 value for just $16, including free shipping today when you visit shopflamingo.com slash best case. That's right. Visit shopflamingo.com slash best case. Warby Parker was founded with rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. The Warby Parker aesthetic is vintage inspired with a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. They're available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores. Glasses start at just $95 and that includes prescription lenses. I had the pleasure to use the home try-on kit. It was so easy to be able to try them on and to share those glasses with my friends, one of whom actually got some themselves, before I then bought my own glasses. Warby Parker's free home try-on program allows you to try five pair of glasses and to try them on for five full days. There's no obligation to buy. It ships for free, and it includes a convenient prepaid return shipping label. So go to warbyparker.com slash best case to order your free home try-on today. Glasses start at $95. There are also blue light filtering lenses now available. So try the free home try-on program. Get five pairs of glasses for five days today at warbyparker.com slash best case. So the mystery is, why would these nine experienced hikers who knew that outside that tent was almost certain death, why would they leave the warmth and safety of that tent? to go outside barefoot and half-dressed, leaving their shoes and jackets and socks, in some cases, inside the tent. Correct. What, what would cause a fight-or-flight situation to the highest degree? With not just one person that, you know, had a momentary lapse of reason or bad decision-making, it's nine highly intelligent hikers. What would cause all of them to make that decision and walk to their certain death. And the conclusion that the very professional investigator had when he did his investigation was that it was an unknown, compelling force. Is that what you said? Correct. Yeah. The final conclusion, Lev Ivanov, who was the lead investigator at that time, he was forced to close the case and he said what led to the hiker's death was an unknown compelling force. And so this is something that I've done, and I actually I'm an expert in the area of equivocal death investigations. And we all know that there are five different manners of death. One is homicide, suicide, accident, natural, or undetermined. It sounds like an unknown compelling force fits into that undetermined category when there isn't enough evidence to determine how a person died. For example, if skeletal remains are found in a desert, then you don't know if the person was wandering off and you know was dehydrated and collapsed on the ground, was killed by the, the heat and the sun and the dehydration, and then after time, their body decomposed and critters 
took pieces of it or whatever. You don't know if that's the case or if somebody killed somebody and dumped their body out there. It's just undetermined. There isn't enough evidence. If there's no markings on the bones, there may not be any way to determine how that person died. So it's a legitimate category. But again, unknown compelling force. Hmm. That's well, here, saying something more. Here, here's the really interesting thing is through the course of working with alpinists and scientists and avalanche experts and radiologists and the top people in all the different fields related to this case and studying the criminal case files, obviously, I understand how the hikers died. But the unknown compelling force is wrapped around why leave a perfectly good tent and walk to certain death. So the cause of death is actually known, but the cause of the reason for them to walk to their death, to their certain death, is what we're really talking about here. Right. So you're talking about the fact that basically they froze to death in some cases, right? But you said there were some traumatic head injuries to some of them? Yes. And and two of the guys had arms and legs that were charred? Yeah. Do you want me to dig into some of that? Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, arms and legs charred. I mean, to an investigator, that sounds like somebody who's trying to get rid of bodies. Sure. So two of the hikers, you know, they left the tent, walked down the ravine, and they went to what would be the south, and they went to a cedar tree. And back then, they would um, sew matches into their long underwear for this exact situation. (laughs) Not exact situation, but for a situation where they need to build a fire. And cedars are much more flammable than pines or the other trees in the area. So they went to the cedar and they broke branches and they lit a fire. But they were in a hypothermic condition at that point. And when the fire hit their body, their body temperature was so low and it was um, exposed to extreme heat really quickly, they fell into the fire and burned. Oh my wow. God. So wow. Sasha, who was someone that might have been suspect, is in a ravine with one of the girls and sees the fire, goes out of the ravine, sees his friends there. When he gets there, he sees his friends are face down, pulls them out, turns them over, as you can see in the photographs that were taken, realizes they're dead pulls some of the clothes off of those two hikers, goes back to uh, one of the female hikers that was in the ravine and started to put some of the clothes on her. So that explains why some of the hikers had their other clothes on. Right. Now, part B of this is why did one of the girls, was she apparently missing her tongue? So she had fallen into a ravine and hit her head on rocks. Mm. This knocked her out. And, you know, this is, we're talking January 31st, February 1st, then the snow filled in over the course of the next few weeks, and they eventually found her body in the spring. And in the spring, a stream started to form, and her head was, she was upside down, and her 
head was in that stream and the microbes and the microfauna ate away the fleshiest parts of her body, hence her tongue. Wow. So there is an explanation and I spent five years figuring out what is logical that happened to these people. So that's actually the cause of their death, right? Yes. And the manner of death is still the question here. And, but I have, I have another question. When you, when you talk about all these things, I know that when you go through hypothermia, that there are stages of it, right? And I think just before you're, you freeze to death, don't, doesn't your body put off a tremendous amount of heat to try to save you? And don't you find that a number of people who do freeze to death end up tearing off their clothes because they're like burning up? Yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar with that. Oh. But um, the alpinists that I worked with said that one of the things that starts to happen is confusion and lack of concentration, slurred speech, and you also start to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And he thought that they were in that stage, hmm. um, considering you know how cold it was there and how long they had been exposed to the elements. Um, you know, essentially, what we're looking at here is a man versus nature scenario. Yeah, and you know, the extreme elements ultimately killed these hikers. But Donnie, it seems like something different happened to everyone. And it seems like so coincidental. And as we're trained as investigators and prosecutors, not to believe in a series of coincidences that seem like they couldn't all happen at the same time. Well, they, they were separated and a few of them had fallen into the ravine. Um, the tongue, the missing tongue is explained, uh, the skull fractures and broken ribs, are explained from falling into, it was was a pretty big fall. I I don't have the data in front of me, but definitely high enough in order to fracture, you know, your, your skull and your broken rib and your ribs. Otherwise, if you're in insufficiently dressed in sub-zero conditions, I, I think that, uh, explains what happens. It's, it's that, man against nature and in nature one. And, and, you know, a big question is that I've gotten a lot is, well, why didn't they just walk back to their tent? Well, it depends on what time of day it was, right? Well, it was after midnight and not a lot know, of exterior lighting there. Is there? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was there at night as well and you can't see your hand in front of your face. And they actually found one of the flashlights that was stuck in the on position. And they had dropped it. So um, they're outside. Outside. Okay. So what about the other flashlights? Were there other flashlights in the tent? Uh, I don't recall if there were other flashlights in the tent. I'm sure there was. Sounds to me like they they must have. I mean, this is Siberia in the middle of the winter, in the middle of the night. And we don't know whether it was snowing out or you know, windy or, uh, you know, terrible weather conditions. So if they did go outside, if they went in different directions, like you said, then it might've been impossible for them in the, in that, those temperatures and so badly dressed to find their way back. I mean, how soon does somebody freeze to death when you're talking, you know, minus 40 degrees? Yeah. 
under a half hour. And, you know, being there myself, getting a firsthand perspective to walk a mile in those conditions uphill in total darkness, you, you simply can't see the tent. You can't see your hand in front of your face. So you're not walking back up to the tent. Uh, to walk a mile when I was there, and it was roughly the same time of year, obviously the weather conditions could have been different, but it, it was roughly the same temperature. Now, whether the winds were different, uh, that's a different case, but I experienced the same temperatures and the, the tundra there, when you walk on it, one step could be in a foot of snow, the next step could be icy. So it's, it's really hard to get your footing. And especially if you're going uphill and especially if you don't have your boots on, or perhaps you don't even have socks on, you really start succumbing to the elements quickly. So what I came to understand after roughly five years of working on this book is that there is an explanation for how the hikers died. But it goes back to Lev Ivanov's final conclusion of the unknown compelling force. Mm. And that is really what has been the most intriguing to me from day one. You know, Lev Ivanov died and he wrote an article for the Moscow Times, I, was, I believe it was. And he still talked about how this case haunted him. Wow. And that an unknown compelling force was the best he could possibly do. And I will say this, I agree 100%. Really? In writing my book, you know, I went through every possible theory I could in working with various uh, experts in different fields. And where I landed was I started working with NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I worked with a group of scientists there um, who four or five of them happened to be Russian scientists. And what we came up with that caused these hikers to leave a perfectly good tent in sub-zero conditions, in total darkness, to walk to their certain death, I think is as close as we can possibly get to solving this case. And I go back to Lev Ivanov and his unknown compelling force. And what happened to these hikers at that time was an unknown compelling force. Right. So you believe that you have a theory that actually encompasses that unknown compelling force and explains with science what actually happened. Absolutely. Well, I know it's very complicated and I know that your book goes into it in greater detail. Um, so I would encourage all our listeners to actually read the book. If you could tell us the title again. Yeah, the name of my book is called Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident. Well, and Donnie, I think in what is such a tribute to you, there have been new developments in this case decades after it happened. And what are those? Well, it's, this year was the 60th anniversary of the death of the Dyatlov Pass hikers, and they've just uh, reopened the case in Russia, and they're taking a team out to the Dyatlov Pass to uh, apparently further investigate. So 
be quite interested to see uh, what they find. I'm talking to my uh, people over there. And um, yeah, it's it's a case that continually um, fascinates people and, and it's understandable. It, it consumed my life. And will they be testing your theory? Um, you know, I don't think they have the technology to test my theory. But and do you I've, have the technology to test your theory? I do. And I've been talking to the scientists at NOAA. And what we are going to do is we're going to build a scale model of the area. And uh, we're going to test our theory as to what we believe happened. Wow. Well, I can't believe that you did all of this to try to figure out this mystery from 60 years ago and, you know, to, to basically honor these kids who, who lost their lives and, you know, and bring them back to life by telling their stories and, and what kind of people they were and their interactions and so forth. But you did it by risking your own life, which is pretty damn compelling to me. So I really appreciate the work that you did. And I can't wait to find out what you find out when you build this scale model and do some tests. And certainly when you're done with that and when this investigation concludes, we'd love to have you back on to talk to us more about what happened. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. So I have to ask you a question, though. I have Mm -hmm. to ask you the question. Is this a best case or a worst case, Don, for you? Jeez, man, that's a hard question. Um, you know, this was a best case for me because I feel like I had an opportunity to bring these hikers back to life and for people to understand that there are these brilliant young men and women who went out there to conquer the distance and as pure escapism. And I was really inspired by their lives. But unfortunately, it was worst case scenario for them because their families will never know exactly what happened to them. And um, that's just got to be heartbreaking. You know, there's nine families, extended families, that do not have answers. And by the way, my book was just published in Russia. It's been published uh, in seven languages now, uh, translated into seven languages. So it'd be interesting to get the feedback on that. But yeah, to answer your question, it's it, it's a best case, worst case. That makes sense. It does make sense. And hopefully in the end, because your work has maybe inspired the Russian government to reopen the investigation. And two, you're going to be working with NOAA scientists to try to actually definitively prove or disprove your theory, they may in fact very well get the answers they've been looking for for the last 60 years. Let's hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here, Donnie. Uh, Thank you, Francie. Thank you, Donnie. What a fascinating case. Really appreciate your telling us about it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Until next time, signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, 
and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe, and you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org. Oh,